Hi, this is Kososo Guaze, and this story is called Murder on the Estates. I hope you enjoy it. When we were children, Afodili and I lived in a part of Enugu we called the Estates. We went to primary school together and played football with the other boys every evening in the old pitch beside the Catholic church. I still remember Afodili's high-pitched laughter and his missing teeth. He has stick-thin legs with old chicken pox scars, marks on his lower lip from that bout of malaria that nearly killed him. And even though I have not seen Ofodili in almost 15 years, I cannot reconcile the boy I knew then with this new version of him, a man capable of murder. I have tried to look through my memory banks, identify things about Ofodili that I perhaps had missed as a boy and could now explain this most horrific of crimes. Because we are not all capable of murder, it takes a certain type of individual to commit such a dastardly act, this greatest of all human crimes. And having known Afadili so intimately in my boyhood, I can't help but wonder if there was something in him that I did not see. But there is nothing now to indicate that Afadili was capable of such violence. For much of our nursery and primary school days, Afodili's mother drove us to school in her old station wagon. Afodili sat in the front with his mother, and the rest of us boys, Okenna, Chugo, Ejike, and me, sat in the back with a sewing machine and stacks of textiles. We used to drive up on Batsu Street, back past our houses, up the hill, and into the busy junction, and for the entire car ride, every single day, Afodili would ask question after question after question. I always wondered where these questions came from, whether they bubbled up from an endless reservoir of chemical impulses firing away in his brain. One early morning on our way to school, we took the exit at the junction and turned right when a mad person suddenly darted into the road, arms flailing. Afodili's mother slammed her brake so forcefully that I hit my head and began to bleed. Afodili shook his head and said, Madness is a disease that is both visible and invisible. We all pondered this statement like we pondered much of Afodili's statements. Then his mother cleared her throat and said, This boy will be a great philosopher one day. And so we started calling Afodili the philosopher. And since he was the oldest of all of us boys, we looked to him for guidance on our various issues, our boyhood entanglements. We sought his advice on things we could not tell our parents. And I remember Afodili always ready with a quick-witted statement or an existential question that had us thinking and pondering and mulling for days. Afodili's mother owned a big sewing shop in Obwe at the market. And on some afternoon, she would gather us boys into her station wagon and take us to the market to help her lift heavy boxes and cut pieces of cloth. There, Afodili would lead us into various adventures, draping himself in the discarded textiles and pretending to be one of the three wise men. We would all dress up, each of us in our chosen fabric, and march about the shop pretending to see into each other's futures into the futures of the passerby in the street. But on Sunday afternoons, we played in Afodili's compound. It was the same type of yard that we all had in the estates, orange trees against the four walls, 
a small roundabout full of hibiscus flowers, and a veranda that jutted out of the parlor walls, and one we used as a launching pad for our many space adventures. Sometimes, our mothers would come along for our olili, our play dates, Okenna's mother the engineer, Paul's mother the teacher, and Ejike's mother the pharmacist. My mother was the only one who did not work. She insisted that women who worked fostered laziness in their husbands and often cajoled my friends' mothers for the two full-time jobs they held, one inside the house and the other outside. But on those afternoons, our mothers would sit around under the tropical almond tree, cutting oranges with sharp knives. While we played, they laughed and gossiped and argued and ate rice. They planned school runs, trips to the doctor for our vaccinations, the PTA meetings at our school. When Afadili's mother was too busy, my mother would drive us to school, and when she was too busy, Ejike's mother would substitute. On those Sunday afternoons, our mothers planned our lives like they always did, and when we were ready to go home, Afadili and his mother would walk us to the gate and wave as we crossed the street. Our mothers ran our lives with precision and dedication. Forward march, left, right, like a battalion readying for war. And I suppose in some ways we were readying for the worst. Things were very difficult in Nigeria throughout the 1990s. Sanya Bacha was still in power. The dictator had appointed only cronies to important offices across the country, so that corruption strangled the economy and blinded us with want. Food was expensive, school fees even more so, and with five children, I'd often watch my mother at her desk, calculating the month's expenses with tears in her eyes. She would call my father and ask him to raise his hand a little. Nene had to see that specialist, she would say, and now there's no money for food. We only saw our fathers a few times a year because they all worked far away. It was the way things were in Nigeria during, during the 90s. Our fathers went wherever there was work, Lagos, Abuja, Timbuktu, and thus we seldom saw them. My father worked for an agricultural manufacturer four hours away in Benin City. Okenna's father was a businessman in Lagos. Ejike's father worked for a politician in Abuja, and Paul's father sold construction equipment in Onicha. But Afadali's father lived the farthest, in faraway England, so that when he called, we could hardly hear his voice on the landline. We had to wait for him to call back when the network was stronger, so that we could ask him about the queen and the snow. On the day my father died in a car accident on the Lagos Benin Expressway, my mother was so distraught that she hurled a framed picture of him across the parlor and accused him of intentionally deserting her. What am I going to do with five children, eh, Donatus? She wept. Who gave you the permission to die and leave me all alone in this world? The mothers all came, the boys too, and they squeezed my shoulders I try not to cry, not when I was the, one, the new man of the house with siblings to comfort. I have never felt such soul-searing pain as I felt that day, and now I realize that Ophodele and I had this too in common, the loss of our fathers. We left the estate soon after my father's death and returned to my mother's village. 
My grandparents and uncles helped us make ends meet. The last I heard of my old friends, they had all dispersed to various parts of the country and the world. But Dr. Wabuike, Alpha Lily's father, had not called, written, or returned to Nigeria in seven years. The murder happened on a workday evening. The story goes that Alpha Lily had quarreled with a former neighbor named Chief Okura at the older man's office. Alpha Dili left the house, the office, after being chased away by police. He left calm and collected, almost calculating, and returned late that evening when Chief Okura had just gotten off work. He murdered the chief in cold blood, wielding a machete over his head and landing it several times in the man's neck. He then fled the scene, tossing the machete into the bush and running down the street and into the bus depot. The news spread quickly, and soon there was a manhunt for Ofodiliwabuike, a cold-blooded killer, responsible for killing a local politician, a man known to be on the move for the people. I returned to the estate a few days ago to see what was left of it. News of Ofodili's crime had pulled me back to my past. I left work early. I work as a teacher at the local private school, the many such schools that lined the city of Enugu. I took the bus from Newmarket to the estates, looking out the window at the passerby and wondering where things had gone so wrong. The estate was a shadow of what I had once remembered it. As I climbed down from the bus that stopped me in front of our old house, I saw that the houses had decayed beyond recognition. From the street, the small bungalows looked dilapidated, some of them leaning on their sides. The orange trees and tropical almond trees that had been tended with care were overgrown and dropping rotting fruits into the busy street. I walked up and down the road, surveying the houses, thinking of when I had fallen to the gutter here or scraped my knee there. I thought of all the times I had run to the shopkeepers for salt or maggi, the times we had marched up the street to attend block rosary at Mamo Bodo's house. I let the cool air sink into my lungs as I surveyed my childhood home, as I looked past the open gate into a compound that was smaller than I remembered it. A stranger's car was parked in the narrow driveway, a strange woman washing clothes on the front steps. When news of the murder reached me two weeks ago, I could not believe it at first. I had not seen my friends in the nearly 15 years since my father's death. I remember now that I thought of Alfadili often in the years of his fortune telling. I thought of what he had told me, that I, would grow, that I would grow up full of questions myself. But I wandered up and down the street now, looking at my old life, absorbing the sights and smells that defined my childhood. The only residents I could recognize were the Wokorochas. I watched as Dr. Wokorocha pulled into her yard and climbed out. Suddenly full of nostalgia, remembering all the time Dr. Wonkorcha had given, driven us boys to school, I dashed down the street and waved as vigorously as I could. The Wonkorochas remembered me. They stood with their hands over their mouths and looked at me with awe, a boy they had known when he was so little, now a grown man. Kingsley, is this you? Dr. Wonkorocha said. Her hair was plaited down her back and her red eyes shone in the dimming light. She looked at me from my hair to my shoes, 
watched me in surprise as I shook her husband's hand. In the days and weeks right after my father's death, the debtors kept calling, coming to the house to shake their fists as my mother. They threatened to drag us into the streets. My father had taken out a large business loan without my mother's knowledge, and now the debt was on her head. My mother cried the morning she received her final warning to pay the balance or risk going to prison. I remember her rolling on the ground, calling relative after relative, beating her chest. I remember that her brother agreed to service the loan while we got on our feet again. But the worst was the afternoon our landlord ordered us to leave the estates. On a Saturday night, my mother packed her bags, loading our station wagon with pots and pans and gallon-must-go bags full of our earthly belongings. She thanked the other mothers who had come to help, who shook their heads and snapped their fingers and lamented the wickedness of the world. As we left the next morning, Dr. Wumokorocha was there. I remember that she offered to give us medical care free of charge whenever we came into the city. Now, the Wumokorochas ushered me into their house and set me up at the dining table, a soft drink in front of me. Dr. Wumokorocha busied herself with a meal, warming up onubo soup in the small kitchen that looked just like the kitchen I had watched my mother cook as a child. She was talkative, animated, and she dashed between the sitting room and the kitchen, wanting to hear all about my life, how we had fared since my father died. Mr. Wokorocha took a seat before me, opening up his own soft drink, a warm smile on his face. It was cool in the sitting room, the windows were open, and a few mosquitoes bounced against the walls. I took a sip of my drink, felt the sweetness at my tongue, and I tried to maintain the conversation, not sure how to segue into what I had come for. Chief O'Connor was the wealthiest man on our block, and he was always invited to our neighborhood events and given a special chair. He was a large man, a gold tooth in his mouth, and as he spoke, he hoisted his trousers up and rubbed his large belly. We all respected Chifokura because he was the most accomplished man in the estates, even more accomplished than Ofodeli's father. He had been a businessman and then had made his way into politics. I remember Chifokura very vividly because he was one of the few fathers who lived at home with his family. I remember that he brought his grown children to all the parties, that he played with the younger ones in front of their yard. I remember that the Okoros ate eggs and milk and drank tea whenever they wanted, while the rest of us rationed our meals, our water, gas for our stoves. They always had their electricity on, big chicken thighs and their rice. I remember that they had cable television and that some kids went over on Saturday afternoons to watch Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. But what I remember the most about Chief Okoro was his booming voice his loud laughter, the way he carried himself, an important man mingling with other important men. He was fond of Ofodeli's father, and I can't believe that Ofodeli would murder him after all these years. In the Wokorocha's dining room, I wanted to know if Mr. Wokorocha had seen any signs to indicate that Ofodeli was a boy capable of such violence. I wanted to know what had happened to the estates after we left, how Ofodeli 
and Tifokuro's paths could have crossed into violence. I had now pushed my food aside, letting the residue of yam dry on my hands. But Mr. Mwokoracha shook his head. Things really changed after you left, he said. There were more armed robberies. Young men came at night to cart off our televisions and take off with our stoves and bed frames. They came wielding guns. The neighborhood really disintegrated. We started keeping money in the house to satisfy the robbers. Did he join the robbers? I asked Mr. Wokoracha. Perhaps this would explain it. Our had fallen into bad company and was encouraged to harm others. This would have been the most liberating explanation. But Mr. Wokoracha shook his head. He was clean, he said. Stayed away from all the nonsense that was happening. He had been accepted into the university to study law. Then what was it, I wanted to ask. Mr. Wokoracha took a deep breath. He shook his head. It's really unfortunate what happened, he said. I can't believe Afadili would do such a thing. The chief was very good friends with Afadili's father. Makes you wonder if you really know the people in your life. I nodded in agreement, and Mr. Wokoracha continued. The house that Chifokura had lived in now had a new tenant. Chifokura and his family had moved across to their mansion before his death. Chifokura's wife, Lolo Kuro, had finagled a pension from the state government, and though she herself did not work, another madame, she was still able to send her children abroad for their education, as was common with the children of politicians and other big men. Mr. Wokoracha shared this with me as we continued eating the onubo soup and pounded yam on fine silverware, silverware that did not match the state of the house. After dinner, I thanked the Mwokorachas and continued on my pilgrimage. I walked past the chemist's shop and headed to the church where us boys had completed altar boy duties every Sunday and Saturday. I walked past the athletic field and stared at the empty goalposts, weeds rising up their sides like small armies. There was no answer to the question I had. Why Ophodili would murder Chifokuro? Perhaps it was politically motivated, I thought. I thought perhaps I could visit Ophodili in prison. I left early on a Friday afternoon and made the short journey to the maximum security prison where Ophodili had been sentenced to live out his days. I was lost in thought, thinking about my own university days, about the boys who were known armed robbers, the ones who left, in, left campus in the dead of the night to terrorize civil servants and market women alike. But from Mr. Wokorata's account, it did not seem that Alfredo was one of such boys. As I was ushered into the prison yard, men with bulging muscles and bloodshot eyes looked at me. I could not help but feel as though I had arrived in a familiar place. Alfredo's face was skeletal his cheekbones jutting out of his skin. He was pale and his hands were handcuffed in front of him. He sat down on the old bench and looked at me as though we had seen each other the day before and the day before that. His voice was gruff, unlike the squeaky voice I remembered on him. It sounded like a man's voice, a voice that knew how to give commands. I can't believe I'm seeing you after all these years, Afadili said as though we were just catching up 
at a local food joint. I wanted to grab at his collar, to shake him. I wanted to pound the answers right out of his smiling teeth. I wanted to beat him into a bloody pulp. Why did you do it? I asked without thinking. He had not mounted a defense when he had been caught. Alfadori had confessed to the crime immediately, saying that he had had planned it in advance and admitting that he felt little remorse. I shook my head. I could not believe I had become the kind of man who visited killers in prison. But a sense of desperation curved its way up my spine. I wanted to know why. Afandili looked at me as though I was no longer there. I watched the way his eyes twitched. I was sure he was being tortured. Natifokuro's powerful friends were making sure his killer got no rest even in prison. There were dark circles under his eyes and dark welt all over his skin. He looked to me like a dead man, but Alpha the least seemed unfazed. Was it political? I asked. I wanted to know if he had been hired to do it, if a political enemy of the chiefs had hired him to execute the man. But Alpha Dali shook his head. He looked at me instead. Sometimes, he said, things need to be done that have no explanation. I looked at him incredulously, ready to beat him with one of the tree branches that hung over our heads. Our guard watched us with his gun at his side, most likely instructed to fire if anything went amiss. But I was not bothered by the guns, or the smell of rot, or the prisoners pulling weeds from the dirt with their bare hands. I was bothered by how, like me, Afadali still seemed. He looked me in the eye. His irises were large in his gaunt face. Some things are simply just what they are, he said. I didn't do it for any reason other than that. Tell me the truth, I said to Afadali. Was this a hit job? Were you hired to assassinate a political target? No, Afadali said, laughing. His laughter rang out into the evening air, sending birds into the sky. The guard looked up and yelled for us to keep it down. I stared at Afadali as if I would fight him. I saw myself wrestling him to the ground, punching out his teeth. Then why did you do it? I asked. Did he upset you in some way when we were children? I mean, you hadn't seen him in years. Afadali yawned. He looked at me, his head cocked to the side. I don't know why you came here, Afadali said finally, but I'm glad to see you after all these years. When I was ushered out of the prison, I was angry. I still had no answers. I saw Afadali and his father on the veranda sipping soft drinks, discussing the rain. I remembered how Afadali would stick his hands out, try to grab the pellets with his fingers. I remembered how he would philosophize that the rain was God's tears sent down to wash away our sins. Then I wondered if there was a religious reason why Afadali had done what he did. But this answer was not satisfactory. I was walking into traffic, hearing the horns of the distant noise, disoriented by my questions about the answers or lack thereof that Afadali had given me, and suddenly I was more confused than I had been before I saw him. I wandered home that night dizzy, and when I slept, I tossed and turned and woke up in a sweat several times during the night. The next morning, I drank my tea in a fog.
I was still a bachelor. There was no wife, no children. Something else I shared with Ofadili. I went to work in a daze. I thought perhaps that I should dig more into Chifokuro. Perhaps the answer was in the murdered man, not the murderer. I found old newspaper clippings where he lambasted the government for its neglect of the masses. I saw pictures of him making speeches from podiums, his bespectacled face bright in the afternoon sun. I saw pictures of him at rallies, read quotes where he talked about serving the people. I could not decide whether I found him strong or foolish, whether his crusade against the military apparatus went anywhere other than the newspapers. But I could not find any answers in him either. Perhaps I had to try harder. I found myself outside Chifokuro's gate one evening. The gate man wanted to know who I was, whether I had an invitation. It was a large house in a guarded estate, the type of house that most politicians had. It did not look like the type of house that belonged to a crusader against corruption, a man fighting for the poor. It had all the vestiges of power, stone lions perched atop the gate, iron gates high up, barbed wire on the clean walls. I remember that Ofadili had told me that Tifokura had collected bribes for much of his political career. I shook my head. Tifokura's wife, Lolo Okuro, met me in the sitting room. She looked at me but could not place me. I'd half a mind to turn you away, she said, but she didn't, and her eyes bore into mine then, and there was interest in them. I did not know how to say what I had come to say, that I wanted to know why my childhood friend killed her husband, that was hunted by his slaying. But I took the soft drink a house help handed me, and downed it as quickly as I could, realizing that I was thirsty. I had never been in such an elegant house. It was nothing like our house in the estates, certainly nothing like, nothing like the village house I had grown up in after my father's death. I thought back again to those dark days after my father died. We were raised in an old house with decaying walls and cracked ceilings. My mother took up sewing while she tried to find her way back to the city. We ate one meal a day, dinner, and we played in the village square after school, kicking rotting balls into wooden goalposts. I remember how much I missed my friends, how much I thought of them in the far-flung places they had disappeared to. I had lost contact with all of them, and it seemed strange to me that the only one of them I had seen in 15 years continued to torment me with his murder of a man. I lied to Lolo Okura and told her I was looking for work connections. Suddenly, I could not tell her what I had come for. I am an old neighbor from the estate, I said to the gate man. My name is King Silia Agude. Lolo Okura looked at me like she did not believe me. On the walls of the elegant sitting room were pictures of her late husband. He looked larger than life, just like I remembered him, peering outside the frame into something beyond. My husband did not deserve what happened to him, Lolo Kura said suddenly, bitterly. The light shone into her face, and I saw that she had called my bluff. She looked at me triumphantly. She knew that the reason I had come was because it had something to do with her husband, and she wanted desperately to discuss him. I had wanted him to stay home that night, she said looking at me as though accusing me of the murder as well. All young men must have been the same to her as she looked at me, murderers waiting for the chance to strike. 
I wondered if she saw Alpha doing in me the same way I saw him in myself. She dabbed the corners of her eyes with a handkerchief. The air conditioning system vibrated in the background. He'd been feeling sick that day, she said, looking at me, and I wanted him to stay home and recover, but he refused. Do you think a political opponent hired his killer, I asked Lola Kuro. I did not tell her that I had spoken to Afadili, that I had gone to the prison to find answers from the man who murdered his childhood neighbor in cold blood. I focused instead on the sense of exasperation that was engulfing me, the inability to find a reason, a motive for a man's senseless death. I had become Afadili's prediction, full of questions, running through the market as I had done as a child, asking passerby for their intimate secrets. I don't know, Lala Kura said. Did you know that your husband took bribes? I asked. She winced, closed her eyes. Why do you care so much about him? She asked. I have always admired your husband, I lied. He was an inspiration to all of us. Lola Kerr looked at me closely, her eyebrows furred. Then she sighed and continued. My husband has always been bigger than life. He has always been a conscious man, conscious of his surroundings, of the world's downtrodden. He was not like other politicians, wanting to eat and eat. He ate, yes, but he was also preoccupied with righting wrongs, addressing unfairness. Not many politicians, big men, are like that. Do you know anything about the person who did this, I asked? I know that the devil will rot in prison for the rest of his days. Soon, Lola Cora tired of talking to me. I wanted so desperately to keep the conversation going, but Lola Cora waved me away. Dejected and disappointed, I thanked her. I made my way out of the house and wandered the streets. There was nowhere else for me to go, no one else I could seek answers from. I felt a panic rising in my chest and spreading to my limbs. I saw the framed pictures of Chivokoro on the walls of the house, saw his bespectacled face, and wondered why on earth Afadili could do such a thing. To me, to him, to all of us.